fact that adults are just bigger kids. That's the, the main thing I've learned in all of my adult jobs and not just the teacher jobs. And in fact, something that struck me was when I was being trained in my NQT year, there was huge focus on making sure that I used that play element and I set up the right environment and positive psychology kind of stuff. But the methods that they were using on me, my managers, were not that. And there's a huge disconnect there. Hello and welcome to UmiCast, a podcast about business and entrepreneurship that will help your business do more and go further. Today I'm joined by Kat Sykes, who is the founder of Game Changing Outcomes. So welcome to the podcast, Kat. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So thank you for coming along. Um, we're going to get into a conversation today about who you are, what you do, how you got here as well. Uh, we're going to touch a little bit on play for adults. I'm really interested to hear more about that. And also um, a little bit about the project that you're doing with Durham University as well. So yes, let's get into it. So you did a po- like a post yesterday on LinkedIn um, about the real KPI. Um, <laughs> so I was thought that might be quite a good place for us to start in terms of uh, you introducing yourself and what you do. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit more about why you posted that? and why you ended up being the Mary Poppins of business change as well. (laughs) Okay, so KPIs are what I've had to do in the whole of my career. So I've had a very varied career. I've been a primary school teacher specialising in kids with behavioural barriers to learning. I've been a construction project manager in London, which is basically bigger kids but with bigger contracts. And I've also been a digital change manager in the NHS, where I've helped doctors and nurses spend less time filling out forms and more time saving lives. Now, all of those different jobs look quite different, but actually there's a common thread that runs through them all, which is getting lots and lots of different people with conflicting KPIs and conflicting motivations to come together and see a shared goal and work together to get there. The the key thing with anything to do with change or getting people to do something is making sure you understand exactly what their internal KPIs are. The real reason why they get out of bed, go to work, and instead of the numbers that they have to show for their bosses to know that they've done work or for their investors to know that they've done the right things for them to put money into them. It's actually about the real concrete things that help people know that they've done good work today. So for example, mine would be seeing the look on someone's face when they see something that they've been struggling with from a different perspective and think, actually, I could do this a different way. Mm everybody has their own internal motivations and if you really get to the bottom of what those real KPIs are that people need in their job and you speak to those KPIs for them then they see why they want to change and then they'll actually change the way that they do things and that kind of leads in I suppose to why I'm the Mary Poppins of change so it came about 
from one of my early clients, I was thinking about how to market myself and I was asking her, how would you describe me and what I do? And she said, well, you're the Mary Poppins of change. <laughs> and I thought, yes, I am exactly the Mary Poppins of change. Basically, what I do is I get different people to like themselves, each other, and the things that they have to do every day. And I do it with a little bit of sugar to help the medicine go down, but a lot of spit spot as well to keep things moving and make sure that people do what they say they're going to do. Well, that sounds perfect. (laughs) So when you talk about change management, what do most people think about and what do you do differently? So any good project manager or change manager will do very similar things as a process. They all make sure that they have communication, they have stakeholder engagement, and they have everything set up to help people understand what change needs to happen. The way that I'm different is I am incredibly people-focused. Process is very important, but you cannot change a process physically unless every single human that is involved in all of the myriad of different connecting activities and tasks actually understands why they want to change. Mm. So there are, I was trying to break it down because this is so many years of knowledge, experience, training, education. What is it that I do subconsciously in my head to know what to do so that I can break it down easily for other people? And there's a few different there's a few different theories that I keep in my mind at all times and I refer to subconsciously. So the first one is about the fact that organisations are an iceberg. Above the waterline, you have everything that we say we do things around here. And then underneath the waterline is the way that people actually do things around here. Mm. Sometimes that's to do with personalities, but A lot of the time it's because the processes people are supposed to follow actually don't work because other people don't understand how they feed into them and how they feed out of them. So they have to make different changes to make sure that things actually work. So you have to get to the bottom of that. You've also got Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm. which is essentially that people need to have their basic needs met, such as financial stability, I know myself, I've had jobs where I haven't earned enough to pay the bills and I've had to get two more other jobs. That does affect things a lot. Mm. Um, You've got to have, looking then, after you've got that, you can look for connection, which is where you kind of get a bit of self-esteem, really, and you get people understanding that you're working together towards a really good purpose. And then after that, you look for respect, esteem, autonomy and trust and then you can actually self-actualize and you can be the best person that you can be and you've got the space in your head to do that. Another one is Daniel Pink's theory of drive. He did this amazing study and basically it demonstrated very, very clearly that you cannot externally motivate someone. They have to be internally motivated to do something if you want them to do it as well as they possibly can. But you can externally demotivate them. Mm. So the key thing that I look for is always what is the barrier in someone's way 
to doing the best work that they can possibly do. And as long as you highlight those and then get rid of them, then you've got plain sailing really. Also, a key thing to remember is that any change is a mini death to every person involved. Mm, it's a like process that. of grief and it's called the anxiety curve, but really it's just the five stages of grief. So you've got feelings of shock, then denial, then anger, then bargaining and depression to acceptance and then problem solving. Now, different people will be further along that line than other people. And also different people will have varying degrees of severity of how they feel those things. But if you always know to look out for that, you can spot behaviour and then you know where to meet people to be able to get them to come forward with you for everyone to all go up as one. Mm. And I think the last thing that I have in my head when I'm thinking about what to do about change is attachment theory. This was possibly the best thing I learned when I was training to be a teacher. And essentially it can be summed up as there is no inappropriate behaviour, there is age-appropriate behaviour. Mm. So if I give you an example of this, when I first started networking for my business, I absolutely hated it. And I found I was having some really, really strong emotional reactions to it. And then when I thought about it, I realised that actually what it was doing was I was being triggered back to when I was 11 and I'd started a new school, had no friends and I would walk around at lunchtime on my own and felt like no one cared because no one did seem to care. And the attachment theory that everybody experiences consciously and subconsciously at work all of the humans working with you or for you will have specific situations that just take a knee-jerk reaction straight away to how they felt at a different point in their life mm. and they will act according to the age that they were then oh. rather than the age that they are now. Oh, that's really interesting. And so when you were 11 and you were at school and you were sort of wandering around, did you ever imagine you end up with the you know, title of Mary Poppins Business Change? <laughs> no. Well, I had depression as well, I, I realise now. Mm. So from the age of 11 to 31, actually. So 20 years of time that could have been better spent, I suppose. And I, I wasn't very appreciative of the things I was good at mm. and always wanted to be good at the things that I wasn't naturally good at that other people seemed to be doing better than me right so we I know we had uh, a bit of a chat before about boxes yes and how it can sometimes be not so helpful to put people into boxes particularly through the schooling system yeah. so I think I if I can take us back, first of all, to a little bit more about your varied experience and how that feeds into what you do now. Yeah. Um, but then I think also it'd be good to then have a look at the boxes side of things. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, yeah, um, obviously tell us a little bit more about how you combined the experiences and the, and the skill set that you have into what you do now. Okay. How did you get there? So, essentially, what I've always been good at is getting people to want to change the way that they do things by seeing a goal that you know will be good for them 
and good for everybody involved. So in project management, that's called stakeholder engagement. Um, when I was a teacher specialising in the kids with behavioural barriers, that was mentoring or it was one-to-one or it was a pupil premium teacher. Basically, my company has developed into gamifying frustrations people have every day to help them overcome barriers in their way and get better outcomes. The This has developed into an offering for education. So you could be working in education, wanting to see more resilience in your students, um, inspiration for them to do the things that they need to do to really improve and work through failure to get to success. You could be working in a business, wanting to see your team have more active engagement with their work and their organisation. Or you could be a business founder, wanting to navigate the seas of uncertainty and and really wanting to feel the way that you did when you actually started the thing in the first place. Mm. The varied experience that I have makes what I do a little bit different because it's not just project management or change management or performance management or process management. It's everything mixed together that I've learned from all of those different jobs. So it's not just team building or conflict resolution or training or well-being or strategy. It's all of them combined into a, a nice little burst of two hours to really kick things up and really kick things off. And I'm very excited because I feel there was a period of time where I wondered what on earth was going on in my life, why I'd done so many different things and how I'd ended up where I was. And then it just hit me in a flash of inspiration that it was really the play element that made what I do different. Mm. And I can do that in a very torn down way with humour and just a general niceness in helping people with things. Or I can do it in a very flamboyant way with Lego and other little props and toys that I have. Okay. So let's go on to the Lego aspect then, because you've just piqued my interest. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about Play for Adults then and why that's important, how it helps businesses as well. So I try and steer away away from the word play too much Mm. because... Decades and decades of um, socialisation with it all basically means that people see it as frivolous and pointless. In fact, even, I wrote this down, they even had um, the definition in the dictionary is that it's about kids doing an activity for enjoyment with no real purpose. Mm. Now, that is not what play is what I've learned as a teacher. So we were we were trained very, very heavily and there's so much ridiculous amounts of research into why play helps kids. Basically, if you think about it, every lesson, they go from not even knowing something exists, a concept that doesn't even exist in their head, to being competent in actually doing it by the end of it after an hour. And the best way to do that was to use play because that's the way that people practice. If you think about 
um, I play tennis. So I don't just go and play a match and then not do anything else. I go and I have coaching so that I can get muscle memory so that I know that when I'm nervous in a match, I can rely on that to make some good shots. I go to club nights so that I can practice what it would different shots would be like in a different scenario. Again, so that when I'm in a stressful situation and stuff has to get done, I'm more prepared to be able to because I've tried in a in a more free environment and safe environment all of the things that I need to do to work in that high pressure environment. Mm. So I think the other things that I kind of want to talk about when I'm talking about play is the fact that adults are just bigger kids. That's the, the main thing I've learned in all of my adult jobs and not just the teacher jobs. And in fact, something that struck me was when I was being trained in my NQT year, how to, I was being heavily monitored to make sure I was delivering my lessons in the right way for the kids. There was huge focus on making sure that I used that play element and I set up the right environment and positive psychology kind of stuff. But the methods that they were using on me, my managers, were not that. And there's a huge disconnect there. And I thought, because I'm an adult, which I'm not, <laughs> to be honest, why do I not deserve to have what we know works for kids? Mm. So that's basically what I'm aiming to do for people going forward. Brilliant. And so you said a bit about, just going to take you back a wee bit on the, the kind of barriers that come up to change. And if we don't see uh, play as being something that's cap you know, possible for us as adults, is that one of the barriers? And, and how does that affect things when you're working with, with people? So I'm going to use a study as a way to demonstrate my point on this and how play gets lost and how play can actually help. So about just over 50 years ago, there was NASA wanted to find the best people to solve their trickiest problems. They went to a guy called George Land and he started off a survey and a study. He studied 1,600 people and the same people in a longitudinal study at the age of 5, 10 and 15. Now he tested them on divergent thinking instead of convergent thinking. And I'll go into that a little bit more later on. But basically divergent thinking is the creative element of coming up with different ideas. How could things be solved in a different way? At the age of five, before kids go to primary school, basically, 98% of those kids could be considered a creative thinking genius. Okay. By the age of 10, only 30% could. By the age of 15, only 12% of those same kids could. So he carried out another serve, another study, which was had an average age of 31, and there was over a million people tested. He found that by the age of 31, 
2% of people could be considered a creative thinking genius. Wow. Okay. And basically what is happening there is not the teachers because the teachers are amazing and they do things to try and create a holistic person all the way through but they're hampered by the overstuffed and super industrialized curriculum boxes that they have to tick going through all of these kids lives and what's happening is instead of using divergent thinking to first of all come up with just how things could be and play with things and get things wrong and come up with ideas that might end up being ridiculous but hey who knows to then you start the convergent process of bringing things down and going well actually what could work here what could work there what options do we have and then going back out to divergent and then back into convergent the kids are just being converged more and more and more homogenized more and more and then that just continues through your whole work in life which then I believe is one of the, one of the main reasons why people then end up having midlife crises crises and deciding I'm not happy with what I'm doing here what can I do to get some meaning Okay, so they've been stuffed into these boxes, essentially, like you say, sort of homogenized and funneled down through, yeah. say, you know, the SATs, and then they've got to choose what GCSEs they're going to do and all that sort of thing. Who isn't knows? It? That age, I, I certainly didn't know at that age. <laughs> what I, I think some people do. Some people find their, their calling and their passion really on in, early on in life because they know that's the one thing that they love. Mm. But I don't think that's everyone. And I don't even think it's most people. Like you said earlier as well, when you were 11 and then through to, you know, your sort of early 30s, you know, not feeling happy in who you were because you were trying to use, you know, maybe not your strengths, you know, you were sort of ignoring your strengths and trying to be good at things that you weren't so good at. So, yeah, yeah so you end up maybe for the wrong reasons, ending up in these boxes that actually are not playing to your strengths. Yes. And so... Tell us a little bit more about that when you are working with people. What sort of boxes do you end up finding that people are putting themselves in and what is the impact on on business of that? So boxes that people put themselves in tend to be sticking with, well, that's the way that things have always been done. That's the way things are done around here. So that's the way we do them. Instead of thinking about how could things be done even slightly differently? It doesn't have to be a revolution. It doesn't have to be a government coup overturning an entire establishment. <laughs> it can just be tiny tweaks to processes that make things work better. Um, also, it's impossible for one person in a company to know every single task and process that has to happen to make so- an output unless if they are the only person doing all of those elements so what happens is people get siloed and they silo themselves as well because they only really have the the mental capacity or the hours or whatever to be able to just focus on what they do when people actually sit down with other people who feed in to what they do and feed out from what they do they realize why they're doing some of the tasks that they do every day. And they also realize how they impact negatively or positively, how well someone else is 
work goes. And there's always really simple ways that they can tweak the way that they do things to make someone else's job easier, which is then only going to make the flow better, only make people happier, only make people more productive and create more output. And that's the real box I think that people end up getting put in is you do this and you don't know and you make assumptions about what other people actually need from you and generally they tend to be the wrong ones. And so how does it work in one of your sessions and you mentioned it's a couple of hours and you'll take a company through a process. Can you explain a bit more about that process that you go through? (sighs) Okay so I was thinking, what could people do without me? So it's great to buy my services and bring me in and get everything kick-started in two hours. But actually, they might want to know how something works themselves and how, how could they do it without me. So the first thing that you need to do is you need to identify every sub-process that feeds in and out of the process that you want to change. And the only real way to do that is to speak to every, to someone who represents every single side of the process and see what happens to what. And then you go in in a little bit more detail and you keep on going in. Then you ask each person separately what frustrates them. You'll get a much better answer from them if you just ask them on their own. What things really annoy them or make their day harder absolutely needlessly in their eyes to be able to get the things done that they want to do and then you know what all of those things are and then you speak to everyone together mm-hmm. to bring all of those points out in a safe way and in a way that has an ease of communication and without finger pointing to basically agree well actually that could be really easily remedied and then you what you need to do is you need to actually come up with a plan with actions like i said the, the tagline to my company is play with purpose you can't just have the play element oh let's all have a discussion about how we can make things better you have to have actions specific measurable actions and owners and times and dates who's going to do what mm. and then you can go from there and that makes it easy to monitor and put the spit and polish on then yes <laughs> brilliant okay so what else did I want to ask you about let's think it was um I think about resources as well if there's anything that if you wanted to get started with that process what would you do as a starting point is there any resources that you can recommend for somebody so um I believe that in the blurb of this podcast there'll be some links there to some free downloads that I've made for my website which will give you information on why people act the way they do so looking at those theories that I look at every day and also if you are wanting to do a digital transformation a very long checklist of every single thing that you should possibly think of before you're doing your business case so that you know you've got every base covered and then also another download on change management think about what things need to be in place for effective change to actually happen and to actually stay and then if you look at those you'll be able to see well actually i'd like to know a little bit more about this 
or I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Yeah. There's also as well some resources that I'm going to give you, which are links to YouTube videos for people who really have helped me bring down to one particular theories of how to inspire people to change, how to get people to really want to move forward with everyone having the same goal rather than people just following because they have to to get paid. Mm. Okay. And so when you think about your journey as an entrepreneur and just to take you back again to what you sort of said about being uh, you know, having depression from, from 11 to 31. Were you already an entrepreneur at that point? No. No, so you were in workplace at that point? Yeah, so that was nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I set up my business three years ago. Mm-hmm. So it took quite a while for me to start realising how life could feel, I suppose. And then I got to a point where I thought... I felt guilty when I left the teaching profession because... I'd spent a year helping these year five and six kids even get to the level where they could even sit their sats, let alone be confident enough to set the, to sit them and do well in them. And I'd done some amazing work with them to get them really ready to give this a go and show people what they were made of. And I remember standing in the exam and watching their souls leave through their eyes in front of me as they looked at their paper. And the wording of the questions was intentionally to try and catch them out. They're Mm. 11. Why why are we trying to catch them out instead of giving them a a platform to really show what they do know instead Mm. of trying to highlight what they don't know before we then send them off to a new school and then get even more and more converged and specialized and and homogenized before they go into work and I I left I had to leave the room because I had to start crying and I just thought I can't do this anymore I can't deal with the curriculum mailing boxes that are literally only in place to be able to give basic stats at some political spin speech at some innocuous conference so now I've set up my business to reignite my mission to come back in a different capacity to impact the curriculum in a way which helps kids not have to chop off all the bits that make them good and them and to actually help them flourish with what they're good at rather than what they're supposed to be good at and then help adults who have been through this conveyor belt already and been through the system at work feel like they can actually be themselves again and reignite and reawaken that five-year-old creative genius and get some really cool stuff done yeah and so that five-year-old creative genius now is getting to play yes (laughs) brilliant which is nice yeah and so you have, um, you've been getting involved recently, haven't you, with Durham University on some research. Yes. 
And again, it was kind of, I think that was the where I was sort of taking this in terms of when you were thinking about what you were unhappy with and then your journey into entrepreneurship. How did things with your mental health pan out with that? Right. So because I've had a, a long period of time with depression to varying degrees, I'm pretty good at spotting it now. Mm-hmm. So I do have a lot of resources now that other people who haven't experienced it before won't have, mm. which is actually a blessing in disguise now. But it still affects me every day as an entrepreneur. So let me, I've got written down some things because I'm talking about this study and it's not just me involved, it's other people. I have to make sure I say things exactly right, otherwise I end up getting corrected and I get told off. <laughs> but the title of the paper that has been produced, the title of research is The Deterioration of Self-Worth in Entrepreneurship. Mm. Now, whenever I tell a business owner that title, they immediately go, whoa, isn't that the truth? Mm. And they want to know more. And that was exactly what brought me to want to do that, to be involved in the research 18 months ago, because I had experienced a cycle of shame, anxiety, guilt, all of those different pulls and tensions between home, work, life, that every single entrepreneur, I would say, is going to experience at some point in time. Mm. And so finding out more about that for myself was wonderful. And going on that journey, learning all of these amazing theories that we didn't even know exist because they get locked away in this vault of research and don't meet real people Mm. in real lives to actually do something with it so it made sense why I felt rubbish Mm. and it made sense to see how actually if I flip things around and I look at things from the opposite perspective and shift my mindset on what I should be doing and actually what really pulls me and what drives me and use my real KPIs Mm. rather than the KPIs I've been told I'm supposed to spout all the time. Mm. It, it reconnects me with why I'm doing it in the first place, which makes me more motivated and makes me do better work. Okay. And so then with the project, obviously you got involved with it because of a personal interest. You start to see things uh, pan out and you wanted to get that research out there. How is that developing now? So it's all at a very, very exciting stage at the moment. So the it was originally um, set up by a guy called Pablo, who is a professor of, professor of entrepreneurship at Durham University. And data he collected at the time before he started, because basically the way it works is you've got to find gaps that haven't been covered yet. And the data collectors said that 7% of people, which I think is way lower than actual in reality, but that's how many people have reported generally in the population depression. But it found that entrepreneurs were 30% more likely to have mental health issues Mm. than their employed counterparts, mainly because of the extreme work-life situation you have. Major rewards, but also major stresses and major tensions as well. also nothing had been carried out to specifically look at why and all of the interventions we knew of didn't look at an entrepreneur's life as a whole it it sectioned things out and didn't take into consideration all of the interconnections at play and how actually that's the thing Mm. 
that causes all of this tension. Mm. So we looked at all that and then it was developed into a research paper. Now, when I started working with Pablo, I could tell he was really, really good at his job. He was fabulous. But I didn't realise just how well regarded he is actually <laughs> in his particular sphere. So the paper, there's, there's a conference in America, and I need to make sure I say this name exactly right, is it's annually and it's for the National Federation of Independent Business and it's Babson College. Now, this apparently is the top event in the world for this topic of entrepreneurship every oh, year. Right. So about 700 papers get submitted for to ask if they can present. About 200 of those get picked and they say, yes, you can present. And then around about the top 40 of them actually get published. And then they choose one to win an award for excellence in research and our paper won it oh wow that's amazing yes so congratulations the deterioration of self-worth and entrepreneurship is officially the top paper at the top establishment in the world so i think we must be on to something absolutely so now we are doing the pilot of the intervention so the whole point of this pablo has a real bee in his bonnet just like we do the people who've worked on this research that research should have impact in real life and mm. it should be able to be brought to people in a form that actually helps them use it to really make an impact mm. so we've got an intervention which is um it runs over five weeks and it, it's one day a week for four hours it's a facilitated workshop and there are the topics are Basically, why do I feel the way I do? What do I already have around me that I can rely on when life happens? What are my real KPIs? Mm. What can I do when stuff inevitably hits the fan in my personal work life? And what can I do to make it easier to keep myself using this approach and improving it? Mm, that's an interesting one, isn't it? That latter one, because quite often we know what we should be doing. We're just not doing it. <laughs> yes. Which is why this relates so well to what I do with my own business, mm. because it's all about the why. Yeah. And if you think about Simon Sinek and his golden circle, you've the thing with being an entrepreneur is you need to not just inspire others with your leadership, you need to inspire yourself first. Mm. You need to ensure that you are leading yourself with inspiration to do the things that you originally started this thing up to do. And then all of those are the things that you have to do that you actually didn't really sign up for but need to happen to make things work are things that you switch in your head to understand why that's helping you achieve what you originally started to do. Yeah, I find that an interesting point because actually as a business owner, you might be a coach or you might be um, a candlestick maker or whatever, you know. Um, you're not necessarily going to be really good at accounts and no. filing companies' house records and, you know, sorting out HR issues and things like that. Do you find yeah. that people get bogged down quite a lot with those things and then that affects their self-esteem? Is that kind of what you're seeing happened in that paper? Absolutely. And I tell you, the first thing that was interesting about the research was we um, we interviewed some people and the first thing 
that they said, which we all thought as well, was no one actually saw themselves as an entrepreneur. Mm. That word is reserved for Richard Branson, Elon Musk, those kind of people who want to complete global domination. Mm. And over 95% of businesses in the UK are actually one-man bands. Right. So it's such a small percentage Mm. of entrepreneurs are the Richard Bransons of the world. What they actually set up their business to do was not to be a millionaire, but to have a work-life balance that matches the way that they want to live. Mm. And immediately, by not resonating with the word entrepreneur, people already feel shame or guilt Mm. that they would not be successful like those people when actually success to them looks completely different so is it about looking at what success means to you is that part of what you do in this pilot yeah I mean and that's your real KPIs Mm. that's what is it you actually want to get rather than thinking about oh well people say I should have growth people say I should have all of these different employees I should be doing this I should be doing that what actually do you want to achieve is it that you just want a job where you can have the whole summer off with your kids Mm -hmm. and still make a living and and it all works fine brilliant if that's what you're achieving that's what your goal is and that's what you need to set up all your processes to be able to deliver for you yeah okay and so then from that program, how is that going to pan out later on? What's the plan for it? So we've got the first pilot is in full swing. It's being held at the Mint Business Club in concert. Mm-hmm. We've done three sessions out of the five. Um, so we've got two more to go. After that's finished, there'll be quite a bit of tweaking, making sure that we've got all of the resources and the timings and, and everything the way that it needs to be to really support people properly mm-hmm. and that so then our final pilot will be in january again at the mint business club in concert and um, after that so we are in the process of setting up a social venture together oh, fabulous yeah it's really exciting and um that means that we'll then after the pilot have an actual fully fledged service that we can offer to people so business support organizations um educators businesses just people on their own will be able to buy places on those we're also going to look at how we can train trainers so that people who are the right fit will be able to go out and and spread the love around as many places as they possibly can the um paper is in the process of being published it's been approved um for being able to be open access so people can download it for free so we'll have the link for that when that's ready really we need to set up a website to properly keep people apprised of the situation but that's on our to-do list and we haven't done that yet but if people follow me on linkedin i will be able to keep people updated because i'm loving where this is going so i'm keeping people updated on all the progress of that also send me a message if you want to be on the pilot in january or if you're just interested in knowing more send me a message on linkedin that's where i'm most active okay or through my website email whatever Excellent. and i'll be able to help people out fabulous 
So I think that's probably a good place to, to finish up. And uh, if you do want more information on Kat and her services, if you go to gamechangingoutcomes.co.uk. Yeah. And if you'd like to learn more about leadership and management, then you can go to Umi Satnav, which is weareumi.co.uk forward slash satnav. Okay, thanks so much, Kat. Thank you. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you.